chapter one, starting seven through almost the end of the chapter. We are gonna actually stop short of the end of the chapter so that I do not teach for 55 minutes. But let's jump back into this story that we are getting so familiar with. We're actually, this morning, we're gonna get into the skin of the text. We're gonna get really close to the text like we always do, but we are gonna have to sit in some unknowns this morning. But when we see a truth about God, when we see a gospel truth this morning, we're gonna cling tight to that. And specifically, here's where we're going. We are going to talk about Jonah's introduction, and then we are going to talk about the progression of the sailor's faith. So where were we when we closed out last week? Well, Jonah's nap is about to end, which is always the worst. And here are these sailors, and they are still searching for answers about this storm. And so they're gonna cast lots. So right away, I don't know about you, but a question came up for me. Why would sailors be questioning a storm? Why would a group of men who lived on the seas and experienced storms all the time, why are they so shaken by the storm? What was going on? What do we not see that's between the lines? What was going on with the storm that made these men say, this is not natural. This is not a natural hurricane. This is supernatural. We don't really know, but it's still good to ask that question, to study slow enough to ask the right questions. So here they are, and they are going to uh, stop, at least for a moment, from hurling the cargo overboard. They're gonna come together as a team and make a plan. The plan is how can we find the cause of this? So they are going to cast lots. Think of that as like playing the lottery, drawing the short stick, rolling the dice, that kind of thing. And so here we have God, God who has shown his power and his control over the huge sea and the waves. Now he's gonna show his control and his power over the lots. And so here they go. Maybe they go like under the deck. Maybe Jonah's still in bed and they pull him out. This is just what I pictured. They encircle him and they start rattling off these frenzied questions and their voices are filled with fear and urgency. Don't forget the storm is still raging at this point. So everyone is in fight or flight except Jonah. And that's a reminder that when we see contrast in the Bible, we should take note of it. Everyone is in fight or flight except him. He's already been awakened by a sea captain. And ironically, the sea captain used the same word that God used when he spoke to Jonah, didn't he? He said, arise. But even then, Jonah doesn't get it. Even then, Jonah is not moved to either confess or explain or act for the sailors. I mean, it's one thing for Jonah to dismiss the, the trouble of a far off people, of his enemies. But now don't we see Jonah dismissing the, the misery, the stress, the, the crisis of people right in front of his eyes? The apparent apathy to the suffering of others here is absolutely sickening. Jonah is so stuck on his own loss. He's so busy licking his own wounds that he's completely detached from the people around him. He is disregarding the suffering that is right in front of him. And isn't this the second time that we're seeing this and we're only seven verses in? Jonah is showing to have no concern for people different than him. 
But here they are, they're rapid firing these questions off at him. And here's what Jonah says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. This is hilarious. This is the weirdest introduction ever. I asked you guys in your homework, make a list. What is weird about this? Again, if we read this book quickly, we wouldn't see how funny it is. So let's talk about this. He says first, I am a Hebrew. And I think it's noteworthy that he says it first. Could it be that Jonah is very, very proud of this fact? Could he be so proud that he is a Hebrew, that he is one of those treasured possessions of God? Could it be that his nationality, his country, is where he puts his hope? I asked you last week, could it be that Jonah is a nationalist? And before we go any further, here's the definition of that so that we can make a, have a good conversation about this. A nationalist, a sense of national consciousness, exalting one nation above all others and placing primary emphasis on promotion of its culture and interests as opposed to those of other nations. Could that be part of what's going on in Jonah? That he is a racist, that he is a nationalist, that he's having these microaggressions in the way of apathy toward people of another race, people from another country, people who just looked different than him. He says, I'm a Hebrew. Secondly, he says that he fears the Lord or in the NIV, it says that he worships the Lord. Okay, but here's what's funny. How did he choose to describe the Lord? He said, the God of heaven who made the seas and the dry land. Yeah, this sea, this raging sea, this Mediterranean sea that seems to be ushering death near to us, he made that. Oh, that dry land, what you are craving right now, what you're desperate for, yeah, he made the dry land too, and, and I fear him. But does he? I mean, is this that point in the study where we read it and then we kind of look over our shoulders like, is somebody else gonna laugh at this? Is anyone else gonna raise their hand? Like, does he fear the Lord? Is that okay? Can you say that? Can you lie in the Bible? So in our homework, we looked at what the Bible says. How does it define fearing the Lord? What accompanies that kind of fear? And we built this working list. To fear the Lord means knowledge. It means accepting discipline, hating evil, having humility. Is Jonah showing a fear of the Lord? No, he is not. The irony is once again obvious. Jonah talks a big game, but his behavior does not back it. The distance from Jonah's head to his heart is vast. Listen to how perfectly Proverbs 28, 14 catches this. It says, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Calamity used in several translations all throughout the book of Jonah. Doesn't that describe him? Jonah who has hardened his heart against the Lord and has fallen into calamity. So if Jonah's not fearing the Lord, let's ask the question, could it be instead that he is afraid of God? There's a big difference there. There's a big difference between fearing the Lord and being afraid of him. Fearing the Lord, what that means is it comes from knowing God 
And it comes from experiencing his power and then consequently being in awe of him, having reverence for him. Fearing the Lord actually means that you cling all the tighter to his nearness. But to be afraid of God, those who are afraid of God, they run from him. Was Jonah afraid of him? I mean, could he have been afraid of what God was gonna ask him to do? Like go to Nineveh. Could he be afraid of him because now he's understanding that God is not a God who can be controlled by me? Was he afraid that God could not be trusted because of what he had asked him to do? Well, let's keep moving. What else do we see in this, introdu- in this introduction? Jonah doesn't answer all of their questions. <clears throat> Did you guys notice that? What doesn't he answer? Our group got it. He does not answer, what is your occupation? Did you notice that? Isn't that interesting? How slow do we have to study? How close to the text do we have to get? How many times do we have to do the repetitive reading so that we can see interesting observations like that? They say, what is your occupation? Jonah does not answer. Well, is there insight for us there? We talked briefly last week that maybe this is why he's so depressed, why he's so apathetic. He's maybe resigned that he cannot be a prophet of God anymore. Maybe he seems to be thinking, you know what? I've lost that position. I have lost that privilege forever. Or maybe he doesn't wanna be a prophet anymore. I mean, maybe it's just that. Maybe he's saying, no way. Maybe he has realized that the cost of discipleship is way too high. The cost of obedience is way too high. But let's linger here for a second. Let's think about this. If Jonah has thought that he has lost this position, this privilege, the standing with God, what does that tell us about what Jonah is thinking and feeling about God? So what do we know right now? We know that Jonah thinks that the the mercy for the Ninevites should be really small if existing at all, right? He thinks that God's mercy for his enemies should be small, but could it also be that he thinks there is no mercy for him? Could Jonah be thinking that God does not have a second chance for him? I wonder if his overall view of God's mercy was pretty minimal. I mean, he is seeing this storm, Is he not? He is hearing the thunder. He's feeling the wind. He's feeling the rain. And maybe he is deducting, God is angry. God is so displeased with me. I dropped the ball when I ran away from him and there is no mercy for me. I will never be a prophet again. Maybe this is another one of those times that we are realizing that what Jonah had was religion and not a relationship with God, even though he was his prophet. And this religion was proving to be a house of cards. Well, let's go right into what can we learn from Jonah's introduction. There is so much in here for us. So let's just ask this, what do we learn in storms? <clears throat> what do we learn about ourselves? What do we learn about God in storms? Okay, so mid-storm, if we pulled you out of bed, if we pulled you out of a bout of the blues or in a time of loss or in a time of change or uncertainty and we handed you a mic, how would you introduce yourself? Let's talk about this. 
because I think it's influenced by three truths that we see from this text. The first is that storms reveal our idols. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew. Could it be that the storm was revealing his idol? So what we cling to, ladies, what you and I cling to mid-storm reveals where we have put our hope. It reveals where we have put our trust. I can absolutely see myself in this scene. I can see myself there saying, mid-storm, I'm an American. I'm a mom. I'm a good person. I'm successful. I'm, I'm generally liked. What I scream in that moment, in that honest moment, shows you guys what I am truly worshiping. It's also, it's like this way of saying mid-storm, like, hey, I am not okay with this storm because fill in the blank, my idol. Hey, I, I'm not okay with this cancer because I have walked with you, God, for years. God, I am not okay with this divorce because I was the one who was forgiving and gracious for years and years and years. God, I am not okay with this uncertainty. God, I'm not okay with this singleness because I have been patient for years. This criticism, God, this rejection where I feel like people are turning against me, it's not okay. I'm not okay with it. I've been serving your people, God. I am not okay with this storm. I see myself doing that. What comes out of me mid-storm is what is in me. It's where I put my hope. When chaos comes, it's not just my idols that are made obvious, but it's also my fears. So storms also reveal our fears. So a storm starts brewing in our lives, or maybe some rebellion and hard-heartedness has brought some calamity, and I know what's gonna bubble up to the surface of my life. It's gonna be fear of death, it's gonna be fear of loss, change of plans, broken relationships, maybe fear that life is never gonna lighten up. Life's not going to level out, get easier, maybe never get back to what I thought it was supposed to be like. I know that those things are gonna come up to the surface in my life when a storm comes. But do you know what I want to fear instead of those things? I wanna fear God. For the first time in the story, I'm actually saying, I wanna be like Jonah. If handed that mic mid-storm, I would want to say, I fear the Lord, the God of the heavens, the maker of the sea and the dry land. But guys, I wanna mean it. Because what happens when we fear, when we worship the Lord, when we have this reverent awe of him, when we fear him, all these smaller fears get washed away. So my fear of death or disease, it gets washed away when I fear the Lord because I then understand and recall that it is God who has numbered my days, God who has numbered the days of my children or my parents. That fear of death, that fear of disease, it gets washed away by fear of God. My other repetitive fear is that I fear 
the fear of man. I, I have the fear of man. So I want to fear the Lord so that that fear can get washed away. So when I, when I tremble at the thought of rejection or criticism or, or not being liked by you guys, that can get pushed out when I remember that I get all of the acceptance and the love that I could ever need when I get it from God. When storms come, I also realize how very afraid I am of failure. I am this achiever just through and through and I'm like Jonah in so many ways. Storms, they drive me nuts. They slow me down. They make me less productive. Hardships, they trip me up and I can't show God what a great performer I am, how obedient I am, how many golden stars I think I deserve. But guys, instead of fearing failure, I want to fear God. So when we are asked mid-storm, mid-hardship, mid-chaos, who are you? Let's not say we're Americans. Let's not say even we're religious as if that would make any difference in the storm that we're going through. What if instead we said we are daughters? We are daughters of the God of the sea and the dry land and we are drenched in grace. Could we be women that say, we fear not this storm, but we fear the one who sent it. We fear not these waves or this wind, but the one who exhaled the wind. Isn't it so cool how storms can reveal so much about us, our idols and our fears. But from this text, don't we also see that storms reveal our true thoughts about God? Our true beliefs about God come out during a storm, our understanding about Him. If there is any disconnect between my mind and my heart, it's gonna come out in a storm. If there's any disconnect between my heart and the life that I live, you guys are all gonna see it mid-storm. I can't keep that hidden. So mid-storm, do we believe that God is truly in control? That he is sovereign, whether it's over waves and wind or lots or our, the small details of our day? Do we claim that God is in control? Do we actually truly from the bottom of everything believe that he's good? Can we be women who say that? Do we believe that he is both just not letting sin go unpunished, but also merciful, rich in mercy. Do we believe that our God is slow to anger, abounding in love, or do the storms trip us up in doubt? Last week, we tried to focus on that our response to a storm would be that we would not harden, but rather soften. This week, could we say that we want to to have faith, to have belief, to firm up our understanding of God rather than get tripped up in doubt. This comes from Genesis once again. Don't we see here's Eve in the garden and she's got this, this point of decision, this, this moment, is she going to believe what she knows to be true about God or is she going to listen to the lie? She believes the serpent and she starts to see God as a killjoy. Wait, maybe God is holding out on me. Maybe in this pivotal moment, I can't trust him. Maybe he's not benevolent because he's not letting me have 
the fruit from this one tree. That doubt takes root in her heart and her behavior will follow after. But when we are asked, how you doing, midstorm, like we always ask each other, how are you? How are you doing? Could we be women who in that time cling very, very tightly to who God says he is? Could we stand up tall with our feet so planted on the promises of God, on the characteristics of God? When we see the wind and the storms and the change, could we say that is both the justice and discipline of God, but it is also his mercy and his kindness? And could we start to to build this understanding that his mercy and his justice are two sides of the same coin? Do you see that in Jonah's story? Guys, think about that. Think about what this storm was to him. It was the justice of God, wasn't it? It was God saying, no, you don't run away from me. You don't call the shots, Jonah. There are consequences to our sin, right? Like a good parent says on repeat. And so it is the justice, yeah, it is the displeasure of God. The displeasure though, rest in the bad decision. Rest on the bad decision that Jonah made. But is that all that the storm was? No, the storm was the mercy of God. The storm was screaming about the love of God. It is worth repeating every single week that we're up here that God pursues us, that the storms in our life can be screaming about his love and his care for us. It is not just discipline, but it is kindness because we know that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Could we point at the storms in our life? Could we remind the women at our table, hey, the storm in your life, it's not just the justice of God, but it is his mercy. And then maybe together we could all remember that this is a time, the storms are the time to throw ourselves at the mercy of God, to lean into it, to claim his loving kindness in it. Let's move on from Jonah's introduction. What happens next? So it says that the, the sailors then were exceedingly afraid. And, and they say to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. That's funny. What does that mean? Like he's like, check it onto the boat. He's like, oh yeah, I'm going to flee from the presence of the Lord. Or, you know, like over a beer or something like that. Like what a weird... That's just a weird detail. I have no idea what it means at all. So let me know if you have the answer. And they say, what should we do? And Jonah says this incredibly odd answer. He says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea that the sea will quiet down for you. He doesn't say, well, here, let me jump off the ledge. He says, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. But do do the sailors do what he says? No, they don't. The sailors don't throw him overboard at this point. And we have to ask why, why don't they do it? Well, maybe they didn't trust Jonah. Maybe they actually just thought his answer wasn't good enough. Like maybe the sea won't die down and then we're murderers. Maybe it's just that age old response in all of us that we would rather work hard. We would rather do the thing where we can feel like we have some control. And so we will just work hard for our salvation. Could it be an even simpler answer that Again, it's a point of contrast. The sailors have more compassion 
on an evil man than Jonah has on them, than the prophet of God has on them. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I think about sailors, I don't think about a compassionate group of men. But there they are and they start rowing. They are rowing as hard as they can. The storm has now gotten more and more tempestuous. They're rowing hard, they're rowing hard. I mean, think at this point, how long the storm's been going on? How tired are their muscles? They've already been throwing stuff over the seas. They're hearing that boat break up and here they are in some probably very simple engineering of a boat, 750 BC, and they are rowing to be saved. And they get to a point where maybe they are so exhausted that they can row no longer. Or they get to a point where they connect the dots that nothing is changing. No matter how hard we try, we cannot seem to appease this God. And so what do they do? Therefore, it's always a good word in the Bible. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. This is hilarious. Who is the first to pray in the book of Jonah? It's not Jonah, even though he has been told to pray by a pagan ship captain. It is the sailors who pray first. It is so funny to me that Jonah, maybe despite himself, has shared about God to the sailors. He has told them about God. And so now we get to see this progression of the sailors' faith. They have gone from these polytheists, believing in many gods, calling out to their many gods, then urging Jonah, hey, throw your God into the mix. Call out to your God so that we're, our chances are greater of getting the answer we want. But now where do we find them? Praying. But specifically, how do they address God? L-O-R-D, capital letters, means Yahweh. Yahweh means personal God. The sailors are calling out to a God of relationship. Yahweh, save me. Personal God, save me. And, and they're saying, Lord, save me. Yes, save us from this death, from this imminent death, but save us also from guilt. Save us from the guilt of, of throwing this man overboard. They're saying, may this sacrifice remove our guilt and save us. How much they, they couldn't have understood at that point. There must've been so many questions still, but here's what they do know. When they address God, they say, Oh Lord, you have done as it pleased you. This is the mic drop of the whole story. The sailors in their very first moment of saving faith articulate some incredibly deep theology. They are saying, God, you are self-sufficient. Now, I don't think they went underboard and grabbed their systematic theology or quickly listened to a good podcast or opened up a Bible study. These are pagan, recently polytheist sailors. And yet God has revealed himself to them in a way where they are able to begin their relationship with this amazing theology. God, you are self-sufficient. In our words, we would say, God, you have no need. 
And furthermore, they are, they are calling on this God who is self-existent. There's a, a fancy word, the aseity of God is what they are talking about here, the aseity of God. God, you are the uncaused cause. You are the uncreated creator. Okay, ladies, don't just, don't just blink slowly at me now because this is heady stuff. We gotta think about this. If pagan pirates could get it, then a group of women from Iowa could get this. Also, I realize it never says they're pirates. I picture them as pirates though. <laughs> I didn't know I pictured them as pirates or I didn't realize it was wrong or that it wasn't in the text until this week. I was like, oh my gosh, I literally pictured them with peg legs and uh, hooks. Oh, like Captain Hook is on the boat, I don't know. I picture them as like, arg, arise. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't say that, but the Bible doesn't say everything. We have to just learn good study habits. But if pirates slash sailors could learn the self-sufficiency and the aseity of God. If they could lay hold of it, ladies, so can we. Okay, we can lead with our minds and it will embolden and encourage our hearts. So here they are. They are drawing out truths from the Bible that they have not yet read, which is so beautiful. They are, they are reinforcing what the psalmist says in 135.6, which you guys saw in your homework. Whatever the, Lord does, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Where? In heaven and on earth. Where? In the seas and the deeps. How cool is that? They are claiming the truth that we can read in Acts 17, where it says the God who made the world and everything in it, he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives life and breath to everything. Ladies, we need to understand this. God has no needs. Think about this. If he had needs, he could be manipulated by that need. And if he could be manipulated by a need, then he could be manipulated by a man. Guys, it is good news for us that we need to grab hold of that God does not need us. He doesn't need our help but he doesn't even need our love and our worship. I mean, it's a mind boggling thing to think that if the whole world was full of atheists, God would have no greater need. If the whole world was atheist, he would not be affected. That greatly changes how we live. And it brings in great comfort because we can understand if God has no need for us, but he pursued us anyway. He wasn't this needy, lonely being. He's communal in nature. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, he didn't need a buddy, but he chose to pursue us anyway. He chose to make a way for relationship with us. And furthermore, how about even just the fact that he comes near to us, that he lives in us, that he walks with us, in every season of life. It's not because he needs us, but he does it anyway. The sailors got that, but I don't think Jonah did. See, we've got Jonah, remember this golden boy, this kind of like make things happen kind of prophet. And I don't know if he understood this. And we see where it led him, right? As we marked repetitive phrases, we are starting to see that his hardness his misunderstanding of God has led him down, down, down. 
He went down, he went down, he went down. He's gonna keep going down till next week in chapter two. Jonah's living as a performer who's forgotten his lines. He's living as an achiever who failed a test and he's pouting as a child who couldn't manipulate his father. But the, the sailors get it and it leads to their salvation. The sailors see God in creation, his power, his dominion, and it leads them to pray a prayer of salvation. They put their faith in a sacrifice, understanding at least enough that for the seas of God's displeasure to subside, a sacrifice would have to be made. So they drop their attempts to save themselves. They pick up Jonah. They hurl him into the sea. We have seen God hurl a wind. We have seen sailors hurl cargo. Even the word for casting lots is the same as hurling lots. And now Jonah is being hurled into the Mediterranean Sea and the sea stops its raging. This progression is pretty cool. The sailors who were afraid and then exceedingly afraid now fear the Lord. The sailors who first had a fear of a circumstance, fear of the storm, then had a fear of man when they feared Jonah, they've now found a right understanding of God and they fear him. Let that motivate us to see God in an accurate light, to see him as he actually is rather than who we want him to be because that will move us to fear him. He's bigger than we understand. He's better than we think he is. And we will start to see things like his power over creation, things like his self-sufficiency, his self-existence, and an awe, a reverence, a respect, a wonder will start to grow in us. And here is our good news to take home this week. This all happened because of a storm. The sailors... Ladies, listen to this. The sailors were not just saved from the storm. They were saved through it. Isn't that beautiful? They were saved through the storm. Remember what we said last week, that every storm is exhaled by God that it might throw us near to him. So how do we live? How do we respond because of that truth? Well, could we be women to keep this metaphor going? Could we drop anchor in the eye of the storm? Could we drop anchor even when life is hard? When when we have no control, no plan for a way out? And could we actually lean into that storm Ask the Lord to fend off doubt from us, to fend off hardness. Could we stay, say with Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite quotes, could we kiss the wave that throws us into the rock of ages? Kiss the wave, ladies, that pushes you near to God, that throws you against his chest. Drop anchor there. Lean into God, fear him, and let him pull out of us what will only steal, kill, and destroy us. 
Lean into Him. Kiss that hardship in your life, trusting that He wants to remove your idols, that He wants to remove your fears and give you a correct understanding of Him. It's not just that He helps us overcome our smaller fears. It's not just that we would become women who don't fear criticism or loneliness or poverty. There's a much greater fear that gets overcome when we fear God. It's the fear of condemnation, the fear of his displeasure. Do you guys see how this story points to that? Are you guys seeing what this, this scene points to, what it, what it hints at? So we don't have to fear the condemnation of God because of where God's justice and his mercy culminate, the cross. Isn't that the point where God's justice, that there had to be a punishment for sin and his mercy, his kindness come together. It is on the cross that Jesus would go and be hung on. He got the punishment, he got the justice, we get the mercy. And because of that, we don't have to live in condemnation and fear that the storms of our life are because God hates us or because he's just so mad or because we think, I have finally run out of grace. That's not true. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of Jonah. And it is not our God. Our God provided a way for us to come near to him and experience his presence forever. It's Jesus who came down. It's Jesus who went down from heaven and then went down and assumed the position as a servant who came down, loved the people very much unlike him, who empathized with the suffering that he saw. It's Jesus, the word of God who said in John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. It's really, really good news for us today. Let's go and do this entire week in response to the love of God. Let's pray.